Oh, that is very some very special, special music. Thank you, Dan and Gerald, for sharing that with us. You can turn now our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We'll pick up where we left off last week. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. I'll begin by reading our primary text. Be beginning in verse 5. The scripture reads, Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, And the King James Version includes this phrase in verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed it in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Well, this passage has been uh, a cause of no small disagreement among Christians over the years. And the reason is actually not so much that the King James Version adds that phrase, there are three that bear record in heaven, Father, Word, and Holy Ghost. Uh, Most modern versions do not. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But uh, no, the primary reason there's disunity over this passage since long before even the King James Version was written is because uh, this text is in a sense enigmatic. That means it's, it's kind of mysterious. And this is because John simply decided to not take the initiative to denote exactly what the spirit or the water and the blood represent. What are the water and the blood? That is the question. So the de- that's the debate here. What do they signify? And, uh, and fortunately, over the years, many things have been used, all kinds of creative, imaginative designations for the spirit, water, and the blood, uh, upon which many people kind of start their own little backyard denomination. For instance, it has been proposed that these three, spirit, water, and the blood, signify characteristics of a truly regenerate, truly born-again Christian. These true Christians then would, of course, have the indwelling spirit as one evidence that they are the real deal. The water then, it's proposed, would signify the believer in water baptism by immersion. So according to some, this text is mistakenly taken as a proof text that baptism by immersion is a prerequisite for salvation. Then you might as well conclude while you're at it that since Jesus told his followers that they will be persecuted, that at some point during your life, if you're the real deal, if you're a true believer, that you're going to 
be courageous enough to witness to Christ to the point of shedding blood. Those are the three that testify, they would say to you, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Um, there's really big problems with that type of interpretation. One of the biggest is that John does not say any of that here in the passage. Uh, other passages of Scripture clearly explain that you are not saved through water baptism. Nor are Christians ever encouraged in the Scriptures to embrace some kind of martyr syndrome. Some martyr complex to go out and in, find an injurious location to witness. Now that type of interpretation completely ignores the entire context of this passage. And unfortunately that's how peripheral cults get started. The passage does not at all describe characteristics that identify a genuine believer from a false believer, or to distinguish them. It was never designed to do so. Instead, this text describes evidence which testify specifically to Jesus Christ. Both verses 9 and 10 repeat the phrase, This is the testimony of God concerning who? His Son. Jesus Christ. The passage is intended to denote the testimony provided by the water and the blood, whatever we find those to be, and it says it's confirmed by the Spirit concerning Jesus Christ. This passage is only about Jesus Christ. So misapplying the, the text can become a huge problem in Bible interpretation, as you might see. You, you just can't randomly assign values to passages and then formulate essential doctrines around them. Instead, we employ passages that are obvious and very clear in Scripture to interpret those other passages, like this one, that are less clear. So you take what is clear in Scripture to interpret what is less clear. A passage can't be used to mean whatever you want it to mean, no matter how creative or ingenious you think you are. You can't do that with God's Word. One example would be, we know some, knew some folks years ago that took Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. If you remember, it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Right? And it continues, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the iniquity of us all has fallen on Him. Right? So what, what is that passage talking about? It's talking about our iniquity being healed by Jesus. Yet people will take that and, and propose all kinds of healing. Your pocketbook will be healed. If you will just speak those words, by the wounds of Jesus, you're healed. People will go into locations where others are ill, try to heal people, and say, by his wounds, by his scourging, you are healed. And they'll try to pronounce some kind of miraculous healing. God never intended that to be a passage concerning physical healing or financial healing. Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant who healed us from our iniquities. Very clear in Scripture. So you can't just assign random values to things and then make a, a doctrine of your own. The, a passage means what the divine author, what God himself intended it for, to mean when God commissioned an apostle or a prophet to write it. Instead, the, the original intent of the divine author 
is what a Christian is always trying to discover, even when it's a little unclear. We want to know what the divine author, the Holy Spirit, wanted to communicate through the human uh, pen that that wrote the scriptures as as the Holy Spirit inspired them. And the, the Bible doesn't mean one thing to you, and then means another thing to a different person, and then means a different thing to me. No, you can't make the Scripture say whatever you want to say. It says what it says. And we're always trying, seeking to understand that. And, and when we say that, you know, that, that's what God's Word means to you, but I just kind of have my own interpretation, it means this to me. The problem with that is, uh, you're actually, in a sense, you're insulting God. You're implying that He has not communicated clearly enough um, that anyone can reliably understand a scripture. Essentially, that proposes that God's given us a big riddle to find out in the Word. It's a riddle and we've got to figure it out somehow, rather than God saying, here is my Word, live by it. We need to be very careful because when, when God says He has clearly communicated to us, which He has said and He has done in the Word of God, we shouldn't be telling Him, well, nobody can really know what that means. Nobody can really know what God's Word says about one topic or another. Oh yes, we can know. God has said so in His Word. So what did the divine author intend the water and the blood to signify? We do know God meant something specific when He set out to write it. So we need to set out to discover what are the water and the blood. Spirit is quite self-explanatory. But over the centuries... There's been some disagreement, to be very honest, among godly, Bible-believing Christians concerning this passage. And the following quote is from a very reputable historian and scholar uh, on on these epistles of John. His his name is Glenn Barker. And and this is written in a a 12-volume series, a a history series, an expository series. has a lot of data about the history of the church and these passages. And it's an excellent resource. And Glenn Barker First states the obvious. He says, quote, Jesus, who is the Son of God and Christ, came not just by water, but by water and blood. That's what the text says, right? This enigmatic statement has given rise in the church to many interpretations. Augustine linked the reference to John 19.34, where the piercing of Jesus' side produced water and blood. Calvin and Luther connected it to John 4 and John 6 and saw it as a reference to the sacraments. Two other theologians, Plummer and Candlish, related it to the Old Testament sacrificial symbolism of the water of purification and the blood of the sacrifice. More commentators today, however, he says, agree with Tertullian and see the water referring to Jesus' baptism and the blood to his death on the cross. So we have here in this passage uh, the renowned St. Augustine. He has one view. The courageous reformers, Luther and Calvin, they had a different view, right? Yesterday was Reformation Saturday, by the way. Reformation Day. And, And we have this early church father named Tertullian who had a third view on this. And these were all believers who tried to understand this text as it refers to Christ. Well, we know one thing. At least two of the three are wrong. At least two of the three are wrong. Maybe all three. 
they don't each have a valid interpretation that carries equal weight. The correct interpretation then to this passage, while very important, it's not salvific. We don't have to know exactly. These were born-again people who disagreed on this passage because it's a little mysterious. So you and I could both be saved and disagree on this passage, how, what the blood and, uh, and the water are. Personally, I strongly agree with Tertullian. He was uh, an early church father born around 150 A.D., not that long after the apostolic period. He is uh, one of the fathers who uh, was first to articulate very clearly, and he, and he used the Latin word trinitas. What is that? Trinity. One of the first to, to bring forth the doctrines of the Trinity. And a lot of his writings were used in the Council of Nicaea a couple centuries later when, when they formulated the Nicene Creed, talking about the, uh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we can look at the text, and you can see if you agree with Tertullian as well, who said that, again, the water signified his Christ's baptism, the blood signified his death on the cross. I don't honestly think this is going to take us very long to get through. I don't think it's that hard. But let's take a look at it, and you can see if you agree. Beginning in verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we know from last week that, that by being obedient to the Scriptures, increasing obedience to God command, God's commands, we overcome the world, right? We learned that last week. This restates that. But now John returns to the topic of Jesus being the Son of God. And he continues in verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. So Jesus didn't come by water only. He also came by blood. And since this entire passage, and, and actually, if you've been with us, this entire book of 1 John, this entire epistle over the last several months, it, it, it commands us Christians to embrace the apostolic eyewitness testimony to Christ, right? The apostolic testimony we've talked about several times, this book is telling us to embrace that eyewitness testimony to who Christ is. So I believe with Tertullian that the water and the blood signify the capstones of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry. His, his ministry began symbolically with his water baptism, right? We read that in Mark chapter 1. And it symbolically culminated with his blood substitution and atoning death on the cross. He came with the water and the blood. Of course, Jesus is still alive today. We know that. He was alive in eternity past as God. But before his, but his, his ministry, his public ministry is inaugurated as baptism. The apostles also are the foundation stones that we talked about a few weeks ago of the church. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And they observed and learned, uh, learned about Christ over what period? From when to when? From the water to the blood, right? And a few days after until the day of Pentecost. The disciples didn't know Jesus before he called them, right at the point almost of his water baptism, did they? They weren't childhood buddies, right? 
he called them, they observed him, and uh, though Jesus was resurrected and appeared after a period of 50 days, or during a period of 50 days after his crucifixion, the bloody cross symbolically culminated the end, right? Of his earthly ministry along with the resurrection. Symbolically. Jesus said, it is finished. Right? So we've got this three-year period. There was an abundance of eyewitness testimony verifying Jesus, verifying his miracles, the Holy Spirit involved during this whole period, and the apostles what? Watching the whole time. Watching the whole time. At Christ's baptism, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And a voice was heard from heaven. It says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then again we find on the holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, we call it. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, we read this. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. That's what Peter, James, and John heard and saw. And then Peter also cites Christ's transfiguration as a, as a contributor to his own apostolic authority. Peter, Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, For we, referring to the apostles, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we received honor, when he received honor and glory from the fa- God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter wraps up saying that no prophecy of Scripture ever came from human origin, but the Holy Spirit of God moved men as they spoke. The holy men moved... The men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost to write Scripture. So I don't believe this passage has to be any more complicated than this. In verse 6, the water baptism by John testified to the beginning. The blood atonement testifies to the end. And during this whole time, this whole three years between the two, the Holy Spirit is testifying concerning the Son of God. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the whole thing. Then in verse 7, if you have a modern English version, it reads simply like this. There are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. The three are in agreement. Spirit, water, and the blood. They're all in harmony, is what it's saying. And they testify to the splendor and the majesty of Jesus Christ. So does that make sense? They testify concerning the Son. Now, if you have a a King James Version, or I believe the New King James Version as well, verse 7 includes this language of a heavenly record with this phrase. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one. 
So those who rigidly support the inclusion of this phrase, the three that bear record in heaven, they propose this is a really great proof text for the Holy Trinity. And the statement is accurate. We know the Trinity consisting of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in heaven is absolutely true. Absolute. Dozens of other texts, passages in the Bible, affirm that is true. So, so this provides a good summary statement of that what is true about the Trinity, right? But the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't stand or fall on this one verse. Here's the controversy. Those who rigidly support the exclusion of this phrase, the three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, they cite that what we have now as thousands of ancient documents before 1000 AD, thousands of copies of biblical manuscripts, um, of which only eight contain that phrase. Of which eight of thousands. And, and of those, none of them originate from earlier than 1000 AD, the ones that have the heavenly testimony part. All of them are later manuscripts originating from the late medieval period, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 A.D. And four of those, four of those eight, record this phrase in the form of a margin note to the side of the scriptural text. Four of those eight, it's written off to the side as a true statement about Jesus Christ. Here's the greater problem. There's no evidence of any early church fathers such as Irenaeus, Clement, Tertullian, St. Augustine, any of them in the first thousand years, no evidence of them ever citing this passage with that, with that phrase in it, the heavenly witness. None earlier than 1000 AD have any record of that. Um, in addition, when the church set out to defend the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, uh, and decades later again reaffirm it at the Council of Constantinople, uh, there's no record of the bishops ever referencing this passage as an evidence of the Holy Trinity. They never cited it. Um, so the argument would be if the phrase were actually in the biblical record before 1000 AD, uh, not referencing it at the Council of Nicaea or these others would be odd. It would just be odd. So here's where I've come. Those of you who would like to be dogmatic that the phrase in verse 7 be considered original in the Bible, I believe it's original as well. For those of you who are dogmatic that it's an accurate statement about the Trinity, but inadvertently added in the form of a margin note by a monk sometimes after 1000 AD, I believe it is added as well. We're all happy. I don't want any emails. I, I just give, them, give the information. Our problem is solved, right? It's an accurate statement. We aren't going to finish this today. We're not going to settle this today. So moving on to verse 9. It says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. I think we can all agree that, that human testimony is, is very valuable. Both Levitical law and, and Israel, as, as well as the church today, all function on the basis of two or three witnesses. 
Deuteronomy 17.6, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of just one witness. And in the New Testament, we find in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. So our modern, our modern court system still functions on this basis. Two or three witnesses. So we readily receive the testimony of men, right? We do all the time when you're watching Judge Judy on, on court, right? We readily receive that. And, 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 and why do we seek better yet, preferably three witnesses? It's because if there's an accusation that is fabricated, or if it is false in some way, it's normally going to be exposed through cross-examination, right? You got two or three witnesses uh, that are fabricating something. You isolate them on their own, cross-examine them with the same questions. Oh, it's going to come up. It's going to come out. Because when people are lying like that, you can't keep your story straight, can you? Listen to this. Even at Christ's trial, Mark chapter 14, verse 55. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they weren't finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. So through skillful questioning, cross-examination, three consistent testimonies, if you can get that, they're generally going to be reliable, right? If you can get three that agree, they're generally going to be reliable. How much more compelling, verse 9 is this threefold testimony concerning Jesus Christ that we get from God. How much more? It's His Son, the Spirit, the water and the blood, eyewitness testimony uh, confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Everything the apostles witnessed over those three years confirmed Jesus is the Christ. One who believes this testimony, verse 10 adds, even has the indwelling testimony within him or herself. What might that indwelling testimony be? The Holy Spirit, right? You have the testimony in you. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made God a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. The one who believes has the indwelling testimony. The one who doesn't believe regards all of God's testimony, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, as a lie. They think it's a lie. They don't believe. Verse 11, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and the life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's a deal breaker right there. You need to believe in the testimony, the three witnesses, spirit, water, and the blood. That belief is witnessed through the internal dwelling of the Holy Spirit. You believe it because God has granted you faith. You want to know something else interesting about this? The Holy Spirit testifies to Christ at his baptism. 
the dove descended. It's the Holy Spirit that strengthened and led Jesus out to the wilderness, right, to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit is the helper that Jesus promised to the disciples, John 15, to remind them of everything that Jesus had taught them. Remember that? And Jesus also said in that, in that chapter, when the helper comes, that is the Holy Spirit, when the helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning, he told them. Now for us to realize that the Spirit empowered those apostles to testify. The Spirit guided them to write the Holy Scriptures, which are called the sword of the Spirit, right? And and it's the Spirit who indwells and seals us. No wonder that Jesus said, whoever speaks against or blasphemes the Holy Spirit, that sin will not be forgiven him. All of this testimony, and you're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? speak against what the evidences are of the Holy Spirit, sin can't be forgiven. That can't be wrought out of the heart, a regenerate heart of someone who believes. The Holy Spirit is the testimony of our faith. And we have eight people today who have trusted in Jesus Christ and received God's Spirit. They too want to be a testimony to Jesus Christ through water baptism. And again, we're not saved through water baptism. We're saved through Holy Spirit baptism, which grants faith. Uh, That's a description of, of the Holy Spirit converting the human heart and granting faith. John the Baptist said, as I read earlier, As for me, I baptize you with water, like the water we have out back, but, the one, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we see that consistent in Acts. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism following it up. Consistent testimony. It's the way you always see it. Two separate things. One saves the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Immersion of the Holy Spirit saves The other testifies, the water baptism. We have a physical immersion. There's a spiritual immersion by the Spirit. We do water baptism to testify what God has already done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, what we have believed in. So we go into the water. This is an obedient picture of declaring our faith through water immersion. Scripture says water baptism is also a picture or an illustration of our going under the water, dying to ourself, dying to those desires to serve ourself, and then coming back up out of the water, renewed, rebirthed, to serve Christ. That's what we're picturing here. A commitment, a public declaration to serve Jesus Christ. Imperfectly because we're sinners. But that's what we're doing in water baptism. The ceremony of water baptism is very symbolic of God's redemptive grace. It is a testimony to the church and everyone else around them, and it's commanded by Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, right? So one of Jesus' first commands to the church is to baptize those who are new converts or have come to the awareness that they're a convert. Why would a Christian not demonstrate their faith through being baptized? Why would they not? If it was one of Jesus' first commands, water baptism. You know, even Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, right? And we know that Jesus had no sin. He wasn't doing it because he had sin. He didn't have anything to confess or repent of. Uh, people wonder, why was Jesus baptized? Some say it was to legitimize John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry. Maybe somewhat. I don't think that's the main reason. Jesus' baptism uh, also wasn't merely an initiation of his three-year ministry, though we learn today from the passage that it was. It was an initiation. It did symbolize that initiation of the three-year ministry. So that was a purpose of the water baptism. But you know what else? Jesus knew that he was going to command all of his followers to be baptized. He knew in the future he was going to give that command and he was going to ask followers to walk where he walked, right? And some of Jesus' first steps took him into the water to be baptized. Your should as well. As you ponder that, and uh, now the candidates, don't know what else to call them, candidates go to change their clothes. They can be dismissed to go change. The rest of us are going, as they get ready, uh, the deacons are going to come forward now to serve us the Lord's Supper and Communion. Another ceremony, you can call it a sacrament, ordinance. It's commanded by Christ to celebrate His blood substitution for our sins on the cross. It signifies our unity, our fellowship, our agreement with one another, and our will- willingness to suffer to proclaim His name. First Peter 2.21 tells us, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we would die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls.